You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Lucinda Larnock. This is the WFHB Local News 4, Thursday, November 11th, 2021. In today's episode, hosts Dr. Rob Stone and Karen Greenstone speak with Anna Manilo, a clinical professor of pediatrics at the University of California in San Francisco. The conversation revolves around direct contract entities, or DCEs. More coming up in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, the city of Bloomington, Indiana and Palo Alto, California recently announced a domestic sibling partnership. That's coming up next in your local headlines. The mayors of Palo Alto, California and Bloomington, Indiana announced a proposal for a domestic sibling city relationship. On Tuesday, Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton met virtually with Palo Alto Mayor Tom Dubois to announce the potential partnership, saying the approval process would happen later this month. Palo Alto Mayor Tom Dubois, who has worked for tech companies in the past such as Electronic Arts and Google, touched on how the project came together. So Palo Alto has eight international sister cities. And as an elected local official, I started thinking, you know, why don't we do the same thing in the U.S.? We can build empathy, understanding, bridge our differences, share opportunities, and even look at how businesses could benefit from working from our regional strengths. And maybe some of those plastic widgets that Google is making overseas could be made here. And I started talking to people about this idea. I found some like-minded people, some that you'll be hearing from in a bit, and together we're making it happen. And I'm thrilled to announce this first step with Bloomington and Indiana being the first two U.S. sibling cities. And my hope that this is just going to be one of many such relationships. Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton said the approval process will happen at the city council. Hamilton describes his perceived value of a domestic partnership with Palo Alto. Look, I'm very confident that just increasing connections between two communities strong links between a coastal community and a Midwestern community that are both full at the community level of these practical, creative problem solvers, that that can really pay big dividends uh, socially, economically, culturally, politically. Um, Our communities always change and evolve to meet new challenges According to a city press release, the relationship would, quote, foster community building, further goodwill and enhance civil dialogue and public policy discussions in the two cities. The notion of international sibling cities is relatively common in the United States. In fact, Bloomington already has two sister cities, which include Santa Clara, Cuba and Pulsatega, Nicaragua. This domestic sibling city partnership would be the first of its kind in the United States. For more information about the agreement can be found at bloomington.in.gov news.
Now it's time for Prescription for Healthcare, a monthly podcast collaboration between WFHB and Medicare for All Indiana. In today's episode, hosts Dr. Rob Stone and Karen Greenstone speak with Anna Manilo, a clinical professor of pediatrics at the University of California in San Francisco. The conversation revolves around direct contract entities, or DCEs. We turn to our hosts for more. From WFHB Community Radio in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Prescription for Healthcare, sponsored by Medicare for All Indiana. This is Karen Greenstone and Dr. Rob Stone. Hello. We have decided to continue our conversations about direct contract entities, DCEs, because of the unclear nature of this experimental project underway with the Center of Medicare Services that has the potential to affect all of us, including those of us not Medicare age. Our guest today is Dr. Anna Malinow, who recently made a presentation on DCEs at the annual national meeting of Physicians for a National Health Program. Dr. Malinow is a clinical professor of pediatrics at the University of California in San Francisco. She has spent decades working with immigrant, refugee, and other underserved populations. She co-founded Healthcare for All Texas and Doctors for Change. Dr. Malinow is the past president of Physicians for a National Health Program and serves as an organizer for National Single Payer. She has been a guest speaker on healthcare reform and has been featured on national and international television and radio. And she's with us today on WFHB Community Radio. Welcome to Prescription for Healthcare, Dr. Malinow. Thank you, Karen and Rob, so much for the opportunity to speak with you. It's such a pleasure to be here today. Thank you for taking time for being with us. Dr. Malinow, there is a move under the radar of most people about a change that's been proposed for Medicare. We've talked with Dr. Ed Weisbart on prescription for healthcare, but the changes and potential risks to patients remain unclear. Will you tell us the difference between traditional Medicare and Medicare Advantage? especially since we're in open enrollment for Medicare right now? Thank you, Karen, for that question. I sometimes call open enrollment open season because that's what October through December has become for our seniors on Medicare. We are literally deluged with ads to sign up for Medicare Advantage plans. So good question. What is the difference between traditional, also known as original Medicare and Medicare Advantage? Most people are quite familiar with how a private health insurance plan operates. If you get your health insurance as a benefit from your employer, you go to your doctor, obviously allowed by your plan's network, you pay a copay, you pay a deductible, and of course, you and your employer pay a premium right out of your paycheck every month. Most people can't wait to get a Medicare because they will no longer have to deal with an insurance company or a network. They opt to stay in traditional Medicare, and about 60% of seniors choose traditional Medicare, which is not without its cost, as you know, but at least you don't have to deal with an insurance company any longer, unless you sign up for a Medicare Advantage plan, which about 40% of seniors have chosen. Now, under Medicare Advantage, you are lured by low to zero premiums and minor dental, vision, and hearing benefits, but you have to deal with an insurance company under Medicare all over again. It's the plan that decides if you go to your doctor or one doctor or another, 
if you need prior authorization or not, what medications are on your formulary, if you can get healthcare from this cancer center or not. So just when you thought you would get rid of that health insurance plan, no, you have it for the rest of your life. Sure, you can switch to another Advantage plan, but it's tricky and sometimes financially impossible to switch back to traditional Medicare. So there you are, stuck with an insurance plan that can deny you care, that can disenroll you, especially at the end of life, that drains the Medicare trust fund and increases Part B premiums through their upcoding schemes. Bottom line, the difference is under traditional Medicare, you don't deal with insurance companies again. Under Medicare Advantage, you deal with insurance every time you get health care or you don't. And there's still a lot of confusion or misunderstanding about the threats to traditional Medicare involving the, the DCEs, the direct contracting entities. It doesn't roll off the tongue very easily. Can you give our listeners an explanation of what direct contracting entities are and why this is a threat to traditional Medicare? Absolutely. You're absolutely right, Karen. There is a lot of confusion because of how these direct contracting entities, or let's call them DCEs because they are hard to roll off the tongue, were created, who created them, and how they're being rolled out. It's not like Congress passed the law with a debate and votes like the ACA. No, not at all. Very briefly, direct contracting entities were created in the waning days of the Trump administration by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, also CMMI or the Innovation Center for short, to de-risk all of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. Now, what does this even mean? 40% of Medicare is already de-risked and in the hands of Medicare Advantage capitated arrangements. This means Medicare doesn't pay the providers, that means the doctors and the hospitals directly for these patients anymore. Instead, it pays the insurance plan that then decides how much healthcare the seniors under the plan get. So remember under private health insurance, the employer and the worker pay premiums to the insurance company and then the insurance company decides how much healthcare you and the work, you as the worker would get. Under Medicare Advantage, it's not the employer, but it's the government that pays the insurance company for you, and the insurance company decides how much health care you as a Medicare beneficiary gets. You would think that this would save money, but it doesn't. In fact, Medicare overpays Medicare Advantage plans billions and billions every year. Another way of putting it is that Medicare Advantage plans bilk Medicare and the government billions every year. And now this is where the DCEs come in. Medicare wants to do the same thing for the remaining 60% of seniors not on Medicare Advantage. But how is this even legal, especially since these are seniors that specifically have chosen not to join a Medicare Advantage plan? So to back up a minute, the Innovation Center was created under the ACA back in 2010 with a mandate to introduce models of care into Medicare that would decrease costs and not worsen care. Now, as we know, in a profit-driven healthcare system such as ours, that's like squeezing water from a rock. It's just not going to happen. But okay, they were optimistic, so the ACA gave full authority to the CMMI, to the Innovation Center, to roll out any model that they deemed fit to all of Medicare without congressional approval. And that's where we are today. The direct contracting entities are this model, which will be rolled out to non-capitated traditional Medicare beneficiaries without congressional approval or anyone's. What is a DCE? Simply put, it is a risk-bearing middleman. So just remember it, it's a middleman 
for traditional Medicare, just like Medicare Advantage plans for seniors that have signed up for Medicare Advantage plans. And why would CMS do this? Sadly, many American health economists believe the reason U.S. healthcare costs are high are due to two things. Greedy doctors billing for too much volume, otherwise known as fee-for-service, and patients just getting too much care. And how to fix this? According to them, you just get rid of the greedy doctors and stop giving Americans so much health care. You set up these risk-bearing middlemen like BCEs that accept payments from Medicare, dupe doctors into joining the middlemen entities and bringing their patients along, let the middlemen grab the money, deny care, upcode, spend as little as 60% on healthcare for beneficiaries, keep the rest as profit, and hope for the best for these poor traditional Medicare beneficiaries. Now, there are 53 of these BCEs, mostly owned by for-profit private equity firms, some for-profit physician practices, ACOs, and Medicare Advantage plans. Most DCEs are owned by corporations straight out of Wall Street. They are roping doctors in with promises to reimburse better than Medicare in exchange for their patients. I mean, that is yeah. awful. Exchange for their patients who will be automatically aligned to the doctor's DCE. So the doctors get to choose the DCE and without the senior's knowledge or consent. We are hearing stories of seniors being sent letters by DCEs, letters that seniors don't understand and don't know what to do with. And the end game is this, a potential 30 million seniors will be aligned because they don't call it assigned, they're aligned by CMS to a DCE through their primary care providers without the senior's knowledge or consent. Wow. Yes, wow. So terrifying, really. It's, and it's so dark and hidden and yeah. So in after hearing all of this, what is your prescription for healthcare, Dr. Malin? So the most important thing to remember about our healthcare system is that it is first and foremost a system based on profit. And DCEs really highlight this. Absolutely. So any prescription for our healthcare system will have to involve eliminating the profit motive from the system. And that's number one. Number two is recognizing healthcare as a human right. Which brings us to number three, creating a national, single-payer, universal, comprehensive, affordable, accountable, accessible, gender-affirming, high-quality, dignified, transparent, and equitable, non-discriminatory healthcare for all individuals residing in the U.S., regardless of sex, age, creed, race, religion, gender identity, sexual orientation, citizenship, disability, geographic location, income, or employment status. Yes. So can I just um, follow up with that, that there is a bill in Congress right now, H.R. 1976, which is the Medicare for All Act of 2021, that will get us pretty close to this. As we know, over half of the Democratic caucus has signed up as a co-sponsor, but that's not enough. We need bills to have hearings in the committees of jurisdiction. We need Speaker Nancy Pelosi to support H.R. 1976, and we need to have all Democrats and, yes, some Republicans to endorse and then vote for the bill. But then the big question is, how do we get there? First, we put a stop to the scheme to privatize Medicare through DCEs. There is a petition demanding Health and Human Services Secretary Becerra stop DCEs. And uh, we have over 4,000 signatories to the petition, and we encourage uh, people to sign the petition. You can go to the website for Physicians for National Health Program, which is www.pnhp.org, and we will be presenting the petition in Congress this month. Now, we know this is a winnable issue, right? DCEs, in theory, 
are just a model that are going to be rolled out. So this is a winnable issue. This is the time to act. And goodness knows Medicare for All activists need a win, right? Second, we collect copies of letters the seniors are receiving from these DCEs. We will be organizing a truth campaign around these letters. So for people that have these letters, please encourage them to send them to you or send them to me. My email, you can put the email, annamalino at gmail.com. And finally, we organize in the streets. We are working with other organizations to mobilize uh, a mobilization campaign called How the Grinch Stole Medicare. And we will be calling on everyone to protest in front of companies that own DCEs, in front of large insurance companies and pharmacies that own DCEs. We are in the planning stages right now. and We need as many people helping out as possible. Please check our website at nationalsinglepayer.com to find out how you can help put a stop to handing traditional Medicare to Wall Street. It's, it's really not going to be Congress that's going to hand this to us on a silver platter. We know that. Uh, it's going to take people mobilizing, organizing, and demanding it. Thank you so much, Dr. Malino, for talking with us today. It's been, really been a pleasure. For WFHB Community Radio in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Prescription for Healthcare. To your good health, everyone. Earlier this week, we covered a story about a resident who reported lead-contaminated debris after the Bloomington Fire Department conducted a prescribed burn of a home at 1213 South High Street as a training exercise. Local resident Matt Murphy collected several paint chips and gave them to Gabriel Filippelli, a biochemist at IUPUI. After testing the paint chips in his laboratory, Filippelli has confirmed the presence of lead. We interviewed both Filippelli and Murphy on Monday during our feature report. In today's broadcast, we listened to a condensed version of that report. On Friday, the Bloomington Fire Department conducted a prescribed burning of a home at 1213 South High Street as a training exercise. Matt Murphy, owner of Four Square Construction and local landlord, says he felt a burning in his throat as he smelled what he suspected was lead-based paint. Murphy then bought several lead paint test kits at Bloomington Paint. He says all of the tests came back positive for lead. I was just sitting in my home office trying to get some things done probably a little bit before eight and saw flames leaping into the air through my neighbor's trees and remembered that I knew they were performing various practice exercises for the fire department at that house at 1213 South High Street. And apparently there were the sort of usual and outdated methods of public notification nestled somewhere in the legal ad about this event. So I walked down with coffee in hand and thought, well, this will be interesting to watch, stupidly assuming that all I's had been dotted and T's crossed. And I, I know there had been some abatement work done there uh, previously to remove asbestos and they took off vinyl siding and they removed the asphalt shingles. So I, I think I sort of assumed that in tandem with all that other prep work that they would have tested for lead, but it would appear that they did not. Pretty quickly, I smelled once the fire dropped down into the body of the house and began to ignite and heat the painted wood siding, which is original to the house, uh, which was built in the 50, early 50s or 1950, 
I knew this smell just from a contractor and painting work that it, it, it smelled like lead paint. And I also noticed at that point that this there was this fallout of chips and ash and debris that was just drifting westward into our neighborhood towards Bryan Park. And I ran back home and uh, went to Bloomington Paint and was able to buy a, a 3M test kit from them, several of them, and uh, tested the samples right then and, then and there and determined that they, in fact, did have lead in them. The city has since responded to the possible lead contamination. A Google form was organized for residents to request remediation in the area at no cost. Quote, local health officials recommend keeping kids and pets away from the ash until testing indicates if it is hazardous, says Fire Chief Jason Moore in a press release. The Indiana Department of Environmental Management, who approved the permits required for the training, will take ash samples to measure the extent of the contamination. The home was built in 1951, wherein lead paint was commonly used for homes of that period. It wasn't until 1978 that federal regulations banned the use of lead paint in residential homes. Lead paint can have devastating impacts on the human body, according to Gabriel Filippelli, the executive director for the Environmental Resilience Institute and researcher at IUPUI. Well, uh, it's particularly dangerous for children. So these are children like zero to about six, five or six years old. And that's because uh, they absorb a lot of the lead that they're exposed to. Uh, adults don't absorb quite as much. And so not only do they absorb a lot of the lead, but their their neurological systems are developing. And lead is a neurotoxin. So um, it becomes particularly problematic. And so if children are lead poisoned when they're young, they have all kinds of learning delays, they have behavioral issues, uh, lower IQ, documented lower IQ, and a host of other behavioral and, and learning difficulties that dog them for the rest of their life. So it's a big issue, particularly for children. Murphy says he hopes the incident leads to some sort of positive change in local policy so that this does not happen again in the future. I hope some good comes of this incident. I, I hope that whether it be local or state, rules, regulations, and laws that govern these types of so-called controlled burns, I hope perhaps they can be changed because it does not make any sense to burn a structure like this in a core residential neighborhood uh, and really anywhere if it's going to release toxins. WFHB News reached out to the fire department, but were unable to reach them before broadcast. For WFHB, I'm Cade Young. been listening to the WFHB local news. Today's headlines were written by Cade Young in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Karen Greenstone and Dr. Rob Stone. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. For WFHB, I'm your engineer and executive producer, Cade Young. And I'm Lucinda Larnick. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. You too can be a part of our award-winning news team. 
For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at wfhb.org. Stay tuned for Big Talk, a one-on-one conversation with some of Bloomington's most fascinating people coming up next on WFHB. Listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer 